I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It was Tuesday, February 4, 1997, and a crowd gathered at the Sydney showground for the official launch of Super League in Australia. It's music provided by Noiseworks singer John Stevens. Launch that evening was not only the game, but also a new commercial, providing the centrepiece of an extravagant marketing blitz on a league-weary public. And the song of choice? Stevens' cover of the aptly titled Frankie Goes to Hollywood song, Two Tribes. This is part two of Two Tribes, the 33rd chapter of the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, fantastic. Part two, two tribes are going to war <laughs> on our screens and on the field. Just listening to your intro monologue there, it's just such a weird fit. The fruity Frankie goes to Hollywood <laughs> and Rugby League. Like. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the entertainment aspect of Super League uh, this year. And in, in one story talking about who was going to be performing at a Super League match, they said, and John, two tribes, Stevens, which I really like. So <laughs> I think we'll just refer him to that from now on. I'm a John Stevens booster. But so we will be discussing the marketing of Super League and the ARL in this episode, as well as Super League's commitment to high-quality entertainment, rugby league as you've never seen it before, uh, and we'll also look at some of the rule changes and setting up the competition. So we're really getting to the heart of the Super League experience in this episode. You know my thoughts on this. I've been saying it to you for six years. It's I just don't think the entertainment is important. <laughs> it's funny because out of the two of us, if we had to pick camps, like you're the Super League guy and I'm the ARL guy, but I think traditionally I've always been the entertainment squared guy <laughs> and you've always been like, no, you just need footy and, and nothing else. Always. You know my thoughts on fireworks, yeah, pyrotechnics, smoke, <laughs> steam, anything like that. Uh, I will say I think I've really come around to your side of thinking uh, as a result of this research and, <laughs> and what Super League put together for 1997. <laughs> but before we get to the entertainment we have to talk about the selling of the game on both sides. And part of that is the title of our episode with Super League going with two tribes as its theme, which it's kind of a really ballsy move. Very ballsy. Like, I will tell you one thing, both sides surprised the living heck out of me for how hard and well they sold their products. Yeah. These are rugby league guys and they sold like Tim Shaw. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. <laughs> the ARL with their campaign, It's My Game, they really like kind of hearkened on the fact that they were the establishment, they were the traditional competition. Which was a smart move. Which was a smart move. I don't know how smart it was of Super League to put so much focus on the fact that the game was at war, like by using two tribes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ballsy, I'll give it to them, appropriate note. Yeah. 
I think this maybe comes down to the fact that both camps kind of spent millions of dollars on advertising firms. So Super League went with Young and Rubicon. Uh, the ARL went to Zenith Media. And it's just reported as if we should care about yeah, these. Yeah, When we're talking about how much we don't care about the business people involved, I care less about the ad <laughs> agencies, right? It's just another sign of the times from last week's episode on the pay TV. Ad agencies were huge. Yeah. Like since Bewitched, they were huge. You know, and just consistently under-delivering and, <laughs> and just failing to even understand the brief. Like there, there's an example of the ARL advertising, um, I think it was a radio ad for a Magpies game where they call them the Pies. Yeah. Oh. How does that pass, like, all the people it has to pass well, through? Well, it has to, to come from Melbourne. Yeah, of course, of course it came from Melbourne. But, like, you're being paid, like, millions of dollars for this <laughs> account <laughs> and you, you don't even understand what you're selling. So for Super League, it was a return to Young and Rubicon who had the advertising account initially. So if you remember the We Are The Champions black and white ad in 1995, that was... Well, that was pretty cool. I think that was, like, maybe the best ad that Super League did. And it's not that hard to yeah. get a classic song and pay a fortune for it and yeah. then get some footage. Yeah. <laughs> like To this day, I think its lasting legacy is the fact that Jared McCracken is in the ad. <laughs> well, Queen's doing the heavy lifting, yeah. if we're being honest. Yeah. <laughs> so with Two Tribes, it was going to be John Two Tribes Stevens doing the heavy lifting. <laughs> uh, so this was a $1.3 million commercial that, in the end, it was just a bit lame. So it's got this, you know, kid waking up for a dream and then suddenly, you know, there's computer games and all these top players of the Super League competition are, you know, kind of racing through and, you know, like carrying the ball around the world with their shirts off. And it was just like ultimately naff. And it was also a clear pitch to capture some of that Tina energy by having the star and the game like intertwined. Like it wasn't just a one-off ad he was there at the launch he was there at the games you know he was the face of super league in some respects a bit more available than tina <laughs> <laughs> so i think like it was a ballsy and b inappropriate and c just not a very good ad in the end uh, and it seems like super league agreed because news limited sacked them like three months after the commercial debuted yeah and i mean maybe nothing could like sell Super League with the public distaste well, for it. So. Picture it if they picked um, Pump Up the Jam or something. Yeah. That would have worked. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like anything but two tries. Yeah. yeah, so I think it was a misfire. Uh, the ARL, on the other hand, with their It's My Game, you know, I think Two Tribes made a bigger splash. It was like showier. It was, I think, has a more lasting legacy. And not just because of, you know, the name of Mascot's book and this chapter. I think people remember that campaign from the time. They definitely do, but it wasn't about who's going to remember it in 25 years. No. It was about who's going to turn up to the game. Yeah, exactly. And in that respect, I think ARL with their It's My Game campaign, which I do not remember from the era at all. I do. And, you know, having gone back and watched one of the ads on YouTube, like I'm kind of underwhelmed with the final product. But it was a clear, like, pitch at something bigger. Two Tribes was essentially just an ad. It's My Game was a direct appeal at the grassroots it of the game. It the heartstrings, yeah. uh, nostalgia, yeah. guilt. It was necessary for them. Yeah. But, I mean, as a guy who lived in nostalgia for many, many years, 
like when everyone's listening to Nirvana, I'm listening to the Beatles, you know? Yeah. It's such an easy cop-out nostalgia. It takes more balls to live in the present. And that's their whole problem. They're looking backwards the whole time. And, uh, yeah, there was something false about it as well. So, you know, the ad had these, like, industrial scenes and it was, like, really hearkening to the roots of rugby league. But, like, that's not where the ARL was at in 1997. It wasn't where the game was at. So there was something disingenuous there. And then on top of it, you had the fact that, you know, we were being told it's our game when it was, you know, kind of clear that that wasn't true. <laughs> it's your game if you can catch it at some late night yeah, yeah. TV slot. <laughs> <laughs> and so Debbie Spillane, who we're going to talk about in this chapter, I think uh, she wrote this propaganda column in the Super League mag <laughs> in 1997, which like I just thought was Awful, and we're going to hear some examples of that. Like uh, someone who's a massive fan of Debbie Spillane, like her credibility took a bit of a hit with her columns in this year. It's funny she got hired in that role, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, But like, I think from the outset, she makes a good point about the "It's My Game" campaign. She said, "I've been a dedicated bum on seat rugby league goer since I was knee high to a turnstile, and yet never at any stage did I presume I had any ownership of the game." I don't remember us being consulted when the Saturday match of the day at the SCG was abolished. When the four tackle was introduced, no one canvassed my opinion on whether or not it was good for a game. We're not owners. We don't get a say in recruitment, pricing, selection and development at the clubs we follow. And I, for one, don't expect it to. Well, she didn't work at Rothmans. How how, how would she be part of the decisions? Exactly. So I think like she has a point there that there was just something false about the sentiment that I think people picked up on. Yeah, but I mean, um, people were jack of being sold to as well by that yeah. point. Yeah, uh, and some of the other ARL ads were similarly uh, misfires. One in particular, which I would love to hear the ad, but it was a radio ad that included the line, I'd give my left nut for a ticket. <laughs> And I haven't managed to get the full context of the ad. Can you so. imagine that was released today? <laughs> There'd be all sorts of groups with like, oh, am I missing a nut? You? you can't be talking about nuts. <laughs> so all I really have to go on is that line and then Neil Whittaker's uh, response to it. It's time to talk about that ad. Without getting into a lengthy debate, let me simply say that we've taken on board the reaction from the public and the advertisement won't be used again. <laughs> Which agency was responsible for that? <laughs> that sounds like an internal yeah. really. <laughs> so I think the advertising kind of tells you a bit where both competitions were at. And there was a lot of posturing in the media on both sides about what each competition offered. So, you know, the ARL were going on about the fact that they had the better competition. You know, Dennis Fitzgerald said, we've got the real game, not something that's been made up. Every game is made up, right? (laughs) But it's a pitch for, like, credibility. We're the establishment. You know, we're not Mickey Mouse. We've been here all along and we're still here, so we're the best competition. They couldn't use the Mickey Mouse line, though, because of Canberra and Brisbane. Yeah, yeah. Without that, Mickey Mouse would have been getting a very very big airing out. (laughs) Uh, Super League, on the other hand, were all about the, you know, their reach. You know, there was the international vision. 
John Rebo saying, Michael Jordan is bigger than our own sports stars. Our kids are all wearing American team gear. That should be a wake-up call. Yet as far as we're concerned, our product is every bit as good as NBA basketball. But until News Limited became involved, we lacked the resources to showcase it to the world. He's right, but what are they doing to showcase it? Yeah, again, they probably didn't do enough on that front or the right things on that front. But it was a clear pitch that sentiment and tradition and nostalgia, that's not enough. Like, we're in a modern world. We're not only competing with rugby union and AFL, we're competing with American sports and, you know, this globalization, you know, we have to do things a bit differently. I will say this, though. It's, It's hard to compare one of the most amazing athletes ever born flying through the air and dunking the ball to like you know, Steve Edman running up and yeah. getting an offload. But if you look at it now, what the game is now, how exciting and high flying. These modern wingers. <laughs> right? like, seriously. Like, yeah. So those highlights are comparable to mm. NBA highlights. Yeah, yeah, now. absolutely, yeah. But the thing is like we already had some of that in 1997 and I think that's something that Super League could offer. Like is your, your Renoffs and your Mullinses and, you know, this new exciting thing whereas the ARL had to kind of fall back on the tradition of their competition. So even like highlighting, you know, the Sydney comp as a virtue. Yeah, yeah, so you had Mark Carroll in the press saying, remember the old Sydney comp? I mean, how tough was that? <laughs> remember when? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as great a player as Mark Spud Carroll was, I don't really want to hear his strategic thinking, you know? Like- <laughs> But I mean, that strategic thinking was aligned with you know the people at the top of the game, and but that's all they had. Yeah, I'm sure they weren't going like, oh, I wish we could bring back the face slapping, you know. But yeah, like, here we are. And you're right that that's all they had. Like with the loss of Canberra and Brisbane, and the loss of you know their reach outside of Sydney. Like you know, apologies to the Gold Coast and the Crushers. Like they were basically reduced to the Sydney comp. And so if they were going to make it a success, they had to highlight that as a virtue and they had to play up on the tradition. So I can't really fault them for their approach in that regard. No, that's why I got respect for their efforts because they it's a more turd-polishing talk, but they polished up what they had. Yeah, and made like a few calculated decisions. The first of this was to celebrate the 90th season of the, at that stage, five foundation clubs who were still playing and the 90th season of the league, which I deliberately phrase that 90th season because, of course, 1908 to 1997 is 89. Like the actual 90th anniversary would have been the following year. So I think there's a really calculated decision to not wait for that milestone and to prioritise the fact that it's 90 seasons. Yeah. So you had the foundation clubs wearing their original jerseys and, you know, playing up on the fact that, you know, it's 90 years. Uh, Like John Brady, who was the ARL spokesman, came out and said, it's our 90th birthday no matter what we do. The party was going to happen regardless of Super League or anything else. But that's the exact thing. It's not your 90th birthday. <laughs> I didn't realize that they uh, snuck it in. Yeah. Which, like, it's happened, like, I think in uh, 2016 and 2017, the Sharks and Panthers made different decisions about which milestone to celebrate. <laughs> so they came into the league the same year. But in 2016, the Panthers celebrated their 50th season. I'm really upset to hear about worked milestones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought they were all legit. Yeah, yeah. 
But funny thing on those jerseys, going back to their original jerseys, this is what a different world we're in. Uh, Greg Mitchell had to come out and defend the fact that they had like home and away strips. He said, the league's view on the jumpers is straightforward. So long as there's not a clash of colors, there's no problem with them. That's having to make a statement on having two jerseys for the year. <laughs> These layers. <laughs> well, now we've got a jersey a week. But um, I really think that's such a – it's an obvious thing, but it's such a smart thing which to execute it well. Get the nostalgia happening. Get the heartstrings pulled. Yeah. It really works. Yeah. And, I loved and, it. And what they also did was to, to fall back on cliché. So – highlighting the fibros and silver tails when Western Manly were playing. Well, I tell you what, if rugby league's turning up the cliche, you're in trouble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so thinking of that, the fact that they were like, you know, bringing up the fibros and silver tails again and the fact that, you know, Tommy Ronicus was the New South Wales coach this year and I feel there's something deliberate about the not necessarily he got the New South Wales job as a marketing ploy, but more the how front and centre he was oh, in the media at this time. And masterstroke. Yeah. The ultimate um, symbol of the old school. Like I didn't really know much about Tommy at all no. before this period. I knew he was considered violent. Well, I remember hearing about it as a yeah. kid. That was it. But basically from this moment onwards, like he just became the figure he's inhabited ever yeah, since. It's just like, you know, a pure representation of rugby league and <laughs> one of the most beloved figures in the game. Yeah. <laughs> Imagine if he signed to Super League. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Taking this to the bloody Orient, mate. So there were a few deliberate things they did at this point. You know, they had to replace the... Rothman's medal, so they made the decision to make it the Proven Summons medal, which, you know, again, you're reverting to a cliche that, you know, occupies a very special place in rugby league. It, it was a smart move. Yeah. Uh, the fact that it was Nokia sponsoring the award led to some controversy with uh, Ron Casey, not a fan. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I mean, I ran against radio last week, right? Why are we listening to, like, Ron Casey's point of view and 1997. So, so Ron Casey on Nokia sponsoring the award said, it's no longer the Rothman medal, it's the Nokia medal. So, of course, when someone wears the Nokia medal in the future, we'll say, you know, zero, zeros, nine o'clock, zeros, nine o'clock. They're coming in fast now. They're coming in for another bombing run or something like, look, I'm a POW. I'm under the Geneva rights. Oh, don't hit me over the head with the butt of your gun, you little Japanese POW guard bastard. I mean, they won't say things like that. I mean, Nokia is a good Japanese company. We should be very proud to have them associated with a great Australian institution. Like hell. They're not Japanese. No. Well, this was the first problem. So uh, Nokia are, in fact, a Finnish company. Uh, that was put to Ron Casey, who then came back with, all derogatory references to Nokia being a Japanese company I withdraw. They're a good European and Aryan company, and I've got nothing racially against them. Jesus Christ. He's off his head, isn't he? He's completely off his head. Uh, sacked by his 2GB for the incident, <laughs> rightly. I like the disconnect by the fact that you're upset about, um, you know, Japan in World War II, but still using the phrase Aryan. <laughs> 
They want to know me, right? I've got, to, got, to, got to jab in. So speaking of uh, the midday show, the final indignity, not only did he lose his 2GB gig, but he was kicked off the midday show after telling Kerry-Anne Kennelly that she was pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> Kerry-Anne told him to leave and was told that uh, your cab docket's at the front desk. So that was one account of the tradition thing working against, you know, some people involved with this. The funny thing about the ARL is that at the same time as they were, like, really pumping the tradition thing, they were, like, quite defensive about it as well. Like, they didn't want to seem like an anachronism. So on that um, John Brady comment when he talked about it being their 90th birthday, he said, we've got a lot of tradition but we're not going back to the past. We're looking forward. We've been looking ahead to develop the code in Melbourne and other places for some time. Now Super League is coming in and capitalising on what we have done. I felt sorry for him because they were left with the dregs. Yeah. And then you're back to the Sydney comp. You've got no other option but to push it. Yeah. And it's obvious that it's not good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they had to show that they were forward thinking even though they were relying on tradition. And, you know, some of that was to modernise. Like So as Super League were talking about their entertainment the ARL were doing the same, but cleverly just always stressing that the football comes first. Neil Whitaker said, we'll have our share of bells and whistles, but we'll have a lot more when it comes down to playing rugby league. This is where Super League dropped the ball, I think, because they push entertainment so hard, like that's going to be the, the draw. Yeah, yeah. It's like, if we want entertainment, we'll go to a concert. Yeah, it's kind of denying your key product, you know. Surely the push would have been, we've got the elite athletes. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, there's some good bands. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Uh, but the ARL also bucked against tradition in a couple of ways that annoyed people. The first was the, the two-tone monstrosity in State of Origin. See, like, even as a teenager, I was like, what are they thinking? Yeah. So you've got pushing tradition the whole way, except for the one thing that should never be touched. Yeah. You're going to make it, <laughs> modernise it to some disgusting two-tone yeah, yeah. thing. Yeah, I know. And, like, the one thing that was still solid for the ARL. Like yeah. they still had state of origin. Yeah. Oh, talk about an own goal. Um, so, you know, I support the outrage over that. The second was demoting the JJ Gilton and Shield to just be for the minor premiers, which uh, outraged, you know, several old heads on the game. Norm Proven came out and said he was disgusted. <laughs> Bob McCarthy said, winning the Shield was a big deal then, but it just isn't anymore. We used to run around as a team carrying the shield, but they don't do that now. Nowadays, they just walk around with their wives and kids. All the traditions have gone. <laughs> Forget their wives and kids, they've got a shield. <laughs> um, I, I did love the carrying the shield around. Yeah, but I don't really understand the furor. Like, the shield itself was only 46 years old. It's not like it's been there since the start. And also, like, why do you need two trophies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it just, like, it made sense. And giving it to the minor premiers actually gives it a unique value now. Yeah, yeah. Like, like it's just so weird that you hold up the Winfield Cup. Oh, yeah, and by the way, you get this as well. <laughs> but so that was the ARL and tradition. Now we need to turn our attention to Super League and the sizzle. So <laughs> one thing I love about it is the way that it's, they're marking it as this, like, you know, brash new, like, you know, it's a new world, but... Brash is not a positive connotation. Mm. Brash is obnoxious. Yeah. I don't know why they want to go brash. Anthony Mundine's brash. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, rugby league journos were so unprepared for it that when they were envisioning, 
the great success that th- this new style could be. Um, I love this so much. Uh, Adam Hawes in the Rugby League Week. Everywhere you turn next year, Super League will be staring straight back at you. Andrew Eddinghausen will visit screaming fans at suburban shopping centres. Alfie Langer will be promoting new cars. And Laurie Daly will take centre stage on the midday show with Kerry Ann Kennelly. <laughs> <laughs> the brave new world. <laughs> I love that this is the extent of their imagination as to what like <laughs> rugby league could be. It was an isolated world, man. They, mm. they wouldn't know anything outside of the little world. Yeah, back then, it was, I didn't. <laughs> but the so- midday show is like <laughs> even out of all the pay TV that they're associated with, <laughs> the midday show won't retirees and. Housewives can. <laughs> but the pitch about the stadiums, like it's just wild like how far removed <laughs> what they were projecting was to the reality of the stadium experience even now. <laughs> yeah. So in that same Adam Hawes article, he wrote, every seat in the house will be hit with 95 decibels of sound courtesy of suspended audio speakers and every supporter can film their own message for screening on the big video screen at each ground. This is done through a mini TV studio inside the ground. There will also be roaming cameras through the crowd, flashing faces onto the screen, and an entertainment producer marshalling his troops each weekend to make sure the sideshow is first class. I love the sentiment, and it's something that should have been done, but it's like he's describing the Jetsons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For the era. Yeah, exactly. And, like, to me, like, that sounds like something I'd read in Jeff Muller's UFO website. (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, this stadium cures world peace. (laughs) It wasn't just Super League. So, you know, in our last episode we mentioned Stadium Australia at Homebush and the way they were talking. Like uh, John Corcoran uh, continuing his mission to be the world's wrongest man. (laughs) This This was his pitch about what going to Homebush to watch a footy game uh, would entail. People will be able to sit down, swipe a card, order a beer, order a photo from a camera up in the roof, order a football jersey, have a wager on the horses, all from their seats. A person will be able to get up at halftime and buy a beer without queuing. We're hoping to achieve world's best practice. He went on to say that even if he couldn't promise there won't be queues for toilets, he said any queuing will be done in private. What does that even mean? I think he means the queues will be like behind um, the toilet walls. Like, so they're not queuing the main thoroughfare. Look, I I don't want to mock the guy too much because all that stuff should be happening. Yeah. (laughs) But all I remember about when that stadium came out was like more comfortable, hard plastic seats and a better big screen. That was all. Anything different about it. Yeah. Well, that's funny because Stadium Australia was being billed as Sydney's first fourth generation stadium. And I'm like, what does that mean, fourth generation? Buzzword it means. Yeah, and they went on to explain. Before World War II, we sat on the grass. Then wooden benches were the norm. Then came the plastic chairs of the SFS and Parramatta Stadium. It's like, well, what's your upgrade from plastic <laughs> chairs? Because I, I feel we're still well and truly in the third generation. I think he's talking about polymer. <laughs> some sort of some sort of plastic variant. But um, none of this stuff's happened in Australia. Yeah. So I think Super League spun a lot of bullshit on the stadium experience that they weren't able to deliver. 
which isn't their fault. They don't own all, own all the stadiums. They've got limited power as to what they can um, put in place. You know, maybe they need to dole back their promises as a result. Well, I can assure you at Topper Stadium for the Hunter Mariners, there were no queues for the toilets <laughs> because there was no one there. But, I mean, one positive was the fact that it got, like, a screen in every ground. Yeah, yeah. That was a positive. That Honestly, was something like, that- thinking back to those before those days, it was, um, it was crazy. But again, just the way that's pitched. So Peter Jackson in his Super League magazine column. Ladies and gentlemen, you'll be able to watch all this and more on your new giant TV. That's right. Every game comes with the giant screen. You, the fan, won't miss a thing. In the past, if you went to the toilet or to get a feed, you missed a try, knock on, head high tackle or forward pass. It was gone. Into the history books forever. Not anymore. (laughs) That's a really great rugby league wording. That's in his voice. Yeah. I love it. So they weren't able to deliver, but what John Rebo says about it, like forget all the bullshit. I actually agree with what they wanted to do. He said, we're also about the fan who goes to the game. People should be able to come to a Super League match and feel as if they're in a warm family environment where they can be entertained and stimulated. Facilities are important. Little things are important. Are the seats comfortable? Do you have to queue too long for a food or a drink? Are the kids entertained as well? One of our themes is more than just a game of football. We want to fill the build-up to the game, halftime and other breaks, with innovations that help fans enjoy a total game experience. I know I'm being a Philistine saying this, going back to the E-squared David Smith saga, but you bring kids to watch the football, right? You've got your young son, you're taking to the football. Presumably he wants to watch the football. Yeah. Right? Apart from a face painting or something pre-game, what entertainment do you need for them? Yeah. You're not going to let them run around on a – jungle gym while you watch the game so what are we talking about here well let's move to what we're talking about then and talk about what the entertainment actually involved so all their you know marketing push was like rock bands are going to be a big part of the stadium experience um you know gary pierce saying it's going to be the best live entertainment at a sporting event you've ever seen uh you know clubs hiring producers for the game day experience, spending $100,000 on a match. Let's talk about the incineration of that cash. $100,000 in 1997 for one game Yeah, to produce it. Yeah. I understand your point about it being unnecessary. I ultimately think it's unnecessary too. Uh, but for me, it's more what do you deliver for that $100,000? <laughs> so I, I want to I focus on that. Um, firstly, uh, speaking of Peter Jackson – he was big on the entertainment, and I, I think I might know your thoughts on this aspect of rugby league entertainment. Fair dinkum. I've overdosed on the power wonder dogs, the goal kicking and bomb catching competitions, Please. and the cheer girls dance routines. I've seen the wonder dogs routine so many times I could take the poodle's place and no one would know. <laughs> First, they weren't poodles, Jacko. <laughs> they were robust animals. Um, they do love a standard poodle. Now... I thoroughly disagree with that. You know that. We know my thoughts on all of those entertainment options, and they're all cheap, except for the Super Dogs. Yeah. But I mean, you can't have Super Dogs every week. It's an, no. it's an attraction. Yeah. So it's like Andre the Giant. Yeah. He comes in for the big events, right? But people honestly love, to this day, fans trying to catch bombs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, in terms of bang for your buck, like, so, spend 100 grand on, <laughs> like, you know, bands that sound like shit. And yeah. you'll get more engagement from some bloke in a dog's jersey and thongs trying to catch a bomb. The bomb catching and goal kicking of fans is the equivalent of a t-shirt gun at a basketball game. Yeah, yeah, it's a staple. Yeah, 
the other like questionable thing about Super League's push is how awful the sound in is in stadiums still to this day. But yeah. but in the nineties, it yeah. it was like you know. Well, most of the stadiums didn't even have walls. Yeah. So <laughs> talk about the sound getting blown away. It was getting blown into the ocean at Wollongong. <laughs> so I, I like Jacko's statement on this. You know, first he was advocating for good-looking cheer girls. Which, <laughs> well, that's a given. Uh, but he said, and the music they danced to shouldn't sound like my $39.95 Kmart cassette recorder with the volume knob on full. <laughs> I love Jacko, man. He was the best. This is the disconnect between Super League's push and where we were at in 1997. Firstly, the technology wasn't there. Like, they just didn't have the capability to... Even if you wanted the big extravagant show, it was going to sound like shit. It was going to look like shit. But on top of the technology stuff, like footy clubs were just like so primitive and in another era in terms of what they were doing. Like this was the start of the kicking tee coming into prominence. And Daryl Halligan was one of the early exponents at the Bulldogs. And so Debbie Splane, who was their, you know, marketing manager or whatever, was asked, isn't it inappropriate that you're playing Mr. Sandman when Daryl Halligan like lines up to kick? Uh, so like Mr. Sandman is blasting over the speakers at Belmore in 1997. Are we talking about by the Cordettes? Or the Cordettes. Yeah. Okay, right. I, I mean, for a while I thought you meant Enter Sandman, Sandman yeah. which, which actually makes sense. That would, that, that would have been pretty cool. That would have been pretty cool, but like – Bum, 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 bum. Like, I mean, I love that song. Oh, but- it's, you know, it's timeless. But- <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, even like worse than that. So Debbie Splane said, yeah, that's a good point and was asked what should replace it. And then she said, oh, what about T for two, as in two points? So T for two, written in 1924, made famous by Doris Day in 1950. <laughs> that's a Walk Ryan style reference, <laughs> T for two and Biggles. That's madness, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, in that respect, these game day producers being given $100,000 to incinerate, it was probably necessary to, to get Super League's vision to become a reality. Well, I'm going to just play um, devil's advocate here. How much of that 100 k do you think got siphoned off the top? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by unscrupulous promoters. Yeah, well, exactly. Right. When they're playing Mr. Sandman on their Kmart cassette, <laughs> like you could sell them anything and they'd think they were, you know, getting a good deal. <laughs> Say you've got 20,000 people in an audience. Yeah. What are the odds that every single person there wants to watch Birds of Tokyo? Yeah. You, you, know, you might get 2,500 people, yeah. Birds of Tokyo enthusiasts, and other people were like, 5,000 might be like, whatever. The other yeah. ones are like, what's this crap? Yeah. So you're alienating people straight off the bat. Yeah. Let's look at some of the entertainment options that Super League were offering. Because I want to, you know, think about whether it was the acts or whether it was just completely unnecessary. So, they advertised some of the acts they'd have at their various events in the first few rounds. So Kim Mazel, who was riding high in the charts as a result of Young Hearts Run Free. Well, I had to look up Kim Mazel, and I pride myself of knowing everything about the 80s and 70s and 60s music. Queen of House in the UK, apparently, I found out. Yeah. Didn't know her. Uh, virus soap. Belinda Carlisle was there at quite a few events. Love BC. Uh, likewise. Very kind of a formative you know, awakening in my life was uh, Leave a Light on Era, Belinda Carlisle. Great stuff. Uh, John Two Tribe Stevens, of course, <laughs> was there. Uh, local acts, you know, like, you know, Human Nature, Nathan Cavalieri, uh, Rick Price and uh, Jack Jones. I always get those two guys confused. Is that Walk Away Renee? 
I think that's Rick. See, this is what I mean. I think Rick Price, Walk Away, Renee, Jack Jones, Hold Me in Your Arms. Oh, that's a good song, yeah. <laughs> uh, and the like. It goes on and on. So at the opening gala, they had Kim Mazel there, uh, you know, to sing Young Hearts Run Free. And this is how they wrote it. Imagine the world's first recreation of the Capulet Ball scene from the Oscar-nominated film Romeo and Juliet. Imagine Kim Mazel performing the soundtrack's number one single, Young Hearts Run Free, before your very eyes. Well, you don't have to imagine. Just be at ANZ Stadium this Saturday night for Super League season kickoff. What in the name of Greek buggery has Kim Mazel got to do with rugby league? How many people are in Romeo the, and Juliet? How many people are in the stands going? This is the world's first ever recreation of the Capulet <laughs> Ball scene. I can't see a tie-in between Romeo and Juliet and rugby league in any situation. Yeah, yeah. Who was watching that? Teenage girls. It just makes no sense that you'd spend all this money on this extravagant. There were like you know three hundred school kids on the field for like something that like no one like cares about. No one asked for. I'll tell you what it reminds me of, this whole Super League Entertainment fiasco. It's just got a real Estedford feel to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just yeah. cheesy, corny, mm. yuck. Yeah. And then they try to, like, build it up. So Belinda Carlisle's song that she was going to sing was top secret and they were trying to, you know, get that out as, like... <laughs> One of three. Yeah. <laughs> One of three hits. You know, and then it turned out to be We Will Rock You, Ugh. which... You know, love Belinda Carlisle. Like, uh, Queen are cleaning up on the uh, royalties. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it seemed like part of the policy was just to latch on to any touring international act. Uh, <laughs> when, when I was reading the list of performers at the, the different games, I don't know why, but this made me laugh so hard. Like Dion Warwick at North Queensland at Stockland Stadium. Well, it made me laugh too. Uh, that was my mum's favourite singer, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so I've always loved Dion Warwick. But yeah. I love Bert Baccarat. But... Picturing her in Townsville in 97, <laughs> you're going to like, hey, go on, Dan. <laughs> this is a stadium. You going to play Look of Love or what? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, I said it at her at the club. She walked on by. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I think Chubby Checker's like a case in point, you know, at Adelaide, you know. So <laughs> they got him. He was in town headlining the, or I should say co-headlining the Easter show alongside hypnotist Steve Boehner and world-famous auctioneer Leroy Van Dyke. <laughs> well, David Foster must have had a mid-card going <laughs> that year. But I put it to you, if it wasn't for the skin-tight jersey, that would have been a good get. Yeah, yeah, If he yeah. was wearing a tuxedo yeah. or something. I was trying to find stuff on Chubby Checker in Adelaide, like whether he'd been interviewed at some point about it or anything. And all I found was just pages and pages of positivity of Chubby Checker just talking about what a great life he'd had and how, you know, he was still touring 40 years after the twist. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, here we are bagging him out for wearing an Adelaide jersey when like, you know. I love the guy. So it's like I feel embarrassment for him when I see that skin tone yeah. jersey. Yeah. On that, do you think it was the jewel get of Chubby Checker and Leroy Van Dyke <laughs> that got Colin Sanders the Super League gig? <laughs> Why is an auctioneer headlining a Easter show? <laughs> is he famous for auctioneering? Well, I, I guess he must. World famous auctioneer. God, the 90s were crazy, <laughs> weren't they? Um, so, like, it wasn't just 
rock band. So they had, you know, themed games like multicultural day with cultural dances and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, that, that stuff's good. That stuff's cheap. It's yeah. uh, real, you know. And if you're going to highlight your entertainment, so the Sharks had a beach day, which, you know, makes sense for Cronulla. Sounds great. You know, they had um, skydivers arriving at the ground in Baywatch outfits. I don't mind that either. Skydivers parachuting in. That's all fair. But then when they book a Beach Boys tribute act to provide (laughs) the music. See, this is what I'm saying. I don't know who's wanting to squint to see these performers in the middle of the Oval when a record would do. Yeah. And, like, get the Beach Boys Tribute Act and you're going to get the same level of crowd engagement as you do by paying $100,000 for, you know, Dion Warwick to, yeah. you know. Yeah, like, I'd rather have the Tribute Act than the disinterested touring celebrity. Yeah. But I'd much rather have the song through the PA mm. for five cents. Yeah. <laughs> Not 100000 And another aspect of the presentation was the Rodney O factor. So Rodney O, the King's, uh, you know, arena announcer who was brought in by Penrith. You're talking to me like I don't know Rodney O. (laughs) Rodney O and me are like this. Um, He's synonymous with Super League. It's so funny. Mm. If you bring up Super League to anyone in the street, they'll mention Rodney O. Yeah. Nine out of ten, not in a positive way. We've talked about him before on the show. He's around a few serious guys. He's not a... He's not a joke. No, 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 not a joke at all. Like, obviously, there's the basketball connection, and he's you know been a big like influence on the Kings over the years, and he's done a lot of good there. He's also apparently like a legend of the local hip hop scene as well. Yeah, like, yeah, he's, you know. a, he's around some tough dudes, but like, um, he's also like eccentric and crazy apparently yeah. as well. Stories tell you, yeah. <laughs> and so it's not his fault, but it's just so disconnected from what rugby league fans wanted at games and to this day still, you know, what we want from games. Well, that's why he's brought up because it's like it was that Americanization push. Yeah. Worked in the NBL. Yeah. You know, and he was, you know, trying to get the crowd going by saying, you know, like, you know, east side, make some noise, you know, now west side. And and my favourite was the Fairfax Sun was the, the local <laughs> Penrith newspaper. And so one promotion was Rodney O on the mic saying, if you want a free Super League football, it will go to the person who yells Fairfax Sun the loudest. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so Ronnie O, not universally embraced. Uh, apparently, a you know, big blowback to him on 2UE. Ray Hadley said, people have called us and said, we don't need an American telling us what a knock-on is. We put five <laughs> calls to air, but we could have put 50 calls through. I do miss the outright contempt for America. Yeah. We had? Yeah. It's like, bloody yanks. Yeah. And again, like knowing that, knowing that sentiment's there, <laughs> yeah. why was Super League like so adamant in pushing that? Because they looked at America and saw how big their comps were, how professionally run they were, yeah. and thought, that's us. Yeah. Well, not yeah. really, mate. <laughs> <laughs> They're playing in um, Madison Square Garden <laughs> and uh, you're playing at Topper Stadium. <laughs> and I think for me, like the best metaphor for – the whole Super League entertainment experience happened early in the season at Penrith Stadium where two fans received burns to the chest (laughs) when they were hit by fireworks. (laughs) Shouldn't laugh. Like, is there a better encapsulation of this entire year than two people going to a football game 
and getting you like burnt by pyrotechnics. All pyrotechnics are a countdown to civilian casualty. <laughs> Rock concerts, sporting events, whatever. There's just no need for them. Yeah. So basically, it was a failed strategy that had no chance of being a success. It wasn't about the acts. It wasn't even about the quality of the PA. It's just the fact that it's not needed. No one's there for it. Well, let me ask you the question. When was the last time someone said to you they were at a sporting event and mentioned the entertainment and said, you know what? How's the game? Well, tell you what, the entertainment was that good. Yeah. I'm going to go again because yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Nikki Webster did her hits, mm. you know, like no one's ever no. said it and it never will. No. I'll stand by that to yeah. the day I die. No, I, I agree with you. But beyond the, the entertainment, Super League had a competition to set up. and <laughs> well, As an afterthought. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, and so part of that came when they announced that Telstra would be the major sponsor of the competition and Super League teams would be playing for the Telstra Cup. This meant that it was going to be a direct head-to-head competition, the Optus Cup of the ARL and the Telstra Cup at Super League, which like just... Says a lot about the it's all about pay TV <laughs> aspect of things. And so it's an apt stand in of the war as a whole. Uh, and it's also like illustrating the fact that the game was so devalued that neither competition could attract an external sponsor. Crazy. But for Super League, who were trying to distance themselves from their, you know, corporate owners, this was all they could get. Pathetic. So John Rebo tried to put a positive spin on it. He said, I think the fit is right. When you talk of great Australian companies, Telstra is right up there. This is certainly not a knee-jerk reaction to the Optus ARL sponsorship. It's a natural fit. Have you ever heard more absolute garbage in your life? I love his garbled finance speak. Like (laughs) at, at every point, like... He like reveals that like he may care about finance, but like he's a guppy swimming with sharks. Like, let's look at that though. Telecom was a government company, the most inefficient and reviled company <laughs> in history. So Telstra, what they come in in what ninety three, ninety four, something like that. Yeah, the changeover from telecom. So it's been around for a, yeah. a handful of years. Yeah. Itself was hated. Yeah, not a great Aussie company. Even if it was, who cares? Yeah. It's garbage. I assume this was a separate interview where he was trying to say the same thing and said it in a more mangled manner, but he said, when you think of Australia, you think of prominent companies and Telstra certainly comes to mind. (laughs) I've got to admire his uh, constant commitment to the cause, the positivity, uh, positive spin this. When you think of Australia, you think of sunburnt positive companies and wide open switches. You can always tell when he's trying too hard to sound like he knows what he's doing. So like he was asked about a mission statement and he said, ah, good question. We're working on it. The whole package, when you put it together, it's extremely powerful. (laughs) So hang on. They haven't got a mission statement and they're three years deep. Yeah. God almighty. I mean, in his defense, that's just corporate bullshit anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I mean, that's what they live on. <laughs> yeah. That's what that's what things based on. Uh, but so there was a lot to work out. The junior pathways were a mess in Super League. So Thankfully, they, they've been solved yeah. <laughs> now. So they were pumping money into junior football, like $1.5 million for each Sydney club for the, their juniors. 
But all the juniors were still playing in the ARL competition anyway because <laughs> they hadn't got it set up. That led to incidents like in Canberra where there was a football carnival where the Bega Valley Dragons were prevented from playing in the carnival because they were aligned with Super League. And predictably, like, Super League people came out and said, you know, oh, this is an outrage. Why are you affecting the kids? Which makes sense. But also, like, you know, there's insurance that ended up being the thing where they're like, well, you know, we don't have the insurance to have, like, people who aren't aligned playing in the competition. So Super League in some ways were like trying to have it both ways by... Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure News Limited could have put a premium up there for $3,000 after the $500 million yeah. <laughs> that's sunk, you know. That's true. Um, you know, poor draw planning with Super League having a three-week period where there was only one game in Sydney. Yeah, that was insane. The ARL, you know, no better in that regard in terms of getting the draw out with a report that uh, <laughs> an old bloke came into Phillips Street late in January asking if he had have a copy of the draw for that year uh, and he was told that it wasn't ready yet. This is like <laughs> late January. <laughs> I'll give him a pass given all that's going yeah, on. <laughs> yeah, I mean the court case was in October. Like, you know. <laughs> there was draw issues like that in a unified comp. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> it could be any <laughs> But so to finish this episode, I want to set up our, you know, final part of this chapter where we're going to talk about Super League actually starting with some on-field talk about the rule changes that took place uh, in both competitions for 1997. So Super League, there are a number of changes. There were basically eight major rule changes. So I thought we'd just go through each. So they were all basically brought in to promote attacking football. So with almost all of the changes, it was about prioritizing attack over defense and then in the process, hopefully making a more exciting brand of football. This is the one thing Super League got right in attitude, execution, and they've been vindicated. Mostly. I think mostly. I think there are... Went a bit hot in some areas. Yeah. But like the attitude was right. But I think both competitions got a lot of things right when you think about the game today. Most of the rules in both competitions that were brought in for 1997 have survived and, you know, they've been modified. But I think on balance, both competitions did a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, with Super League, one that didn't last was the scorers kicking off. Didn't like that. Confused me, actually. Yeah. And it seemed like it was coming um, from pressure from England because there was a fear that games were becoming too lopsided. And this was put down to the 10-meter rule, you know, saying that teams get a roll on and that can lead to, you know, big, you know, steamrolling matches. Well, I found that in Super League, the dud teams would just drop the ball after the kickoff yeah, yeah. and they'd be on the attack straight away. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think, you know, aligning this rule change with the 10-meter rule illustrates the folly of making a rule and reacting too quickly to counteract that rule with another rule change. Yeah. You have to give teams time to catch up to the rules, which always seems to take them like three or four years. <laughs> so I think you have to let that evolution happen naturally before artificially trying to fix it with more rule changes. Well, the rugby league brain doesn't allow for like adapting. So yeah. The rule changes, you play as if the old rule exists for two more years and complain incessantly, yeah. and then you get it. I was surprised to see Warren Ryan was a defender of the change to scorers 
kicking off. I'm not. He's an innovator, Och. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but he thought it was a great change. He said not a monumental change, but an important one. Uh, it was, you know, quite unpopular across the board, I think. It just seemed like change for change's sake. Yeah. Like, and just a direct, like, ploy to, you know, copy the NFL. Yeah. But ultimately, I think it's probably like a, a net zero change. Like, what effect does it really have on the game? Yeah. So, like, Trevor McEwen in defending it came out and said, you know, talked about a Bulldogs Mariners game. And he said, Rod Silver tiptoed through the Mariners' defense to put Canterbury ahead 20 to 16 with just three minutes to go. Under the old rule requiring the Mariners to kick off, the Bulldogs would have soaked up two minutes of that remaining time with boring one-out forward runs, leaving Hunter at the wrong end of the ground and barely any time on the clock. But, like, you could easily counteract that with, like, an opposite scenario. So, you know, like, the Mariners score to get within a try with three minutes to go, but instead of getting the ball back and being immediately on the tack, they, you know, they give the Bulldogs back to soak up the clock in the same way. Like, I think... It's just a nothing rule that doesn't affect the game too much. I think you summed it up. Change for change's sake. Um, the no striking in the ruck rule. and The, the greatest yeah, ever, ever yeah. rule. So it worked both ways where as the marker, you couldn't challenge for the ball. As the player playing the ball, you couldn't play on if you know the marker wasn't square. So, <laughs> I mean, Benny Elias ruined the game with that rule. Yeah. <laughs> and a more maddening player option you would never find yeah, for a yeah, fan or a coach exactly so it was just so messy and it I, never I, worked yeah no. <laughs> so an unambiguous winner in getting rid of that uh one-on-one strip this was another one that i think it took some time to get right but the version we've got now i think works really well perfect and so it was a great rule to bring in at the time um they had it with alfie right and then they got rid of it and then they brought it back it seems like a gimme to me yeah yeah agreed um, the zero tackle came in with Super League in this year, but it was a different zero tackle to what we know as now, where if you kicked down the field and you, the defending team didn't let the ball go into touch but collected it, it was zero tackle then. Um, but if they then passed the ball, the zero tackle was cancelled. Too convoluted. Too convoluted. And also it's too much of a reward. You know, I think now when it's an error, that works. But again, I think zero tackle works well now. And so like the one-on-one strip, it you know kind of came in and it's evolved over time and the idea was there. Like it was forward thinking and it just took some time to get it right. Uh, interchange was uh, still a problem. We were in the unlimited interchange era. Super League solution was like kind of half-hearted. It was unlimited interchange, but it was two like replacements. So... Two players came off and didn't come back on, but it was unlimited interchange. Another convoluted yeah, one. Like, it's just a half measure when everyone knew by that point that unlimited interchange had to go, but neither the ARL or Super League could pull the trigger on it. We've discussed it in the past on the show, but the idea was right mm. and then it just didn't suit the game. Yeah. So it was coming from a right place, particularly in terms of player welfare. That was one of the main reasons it was brought in, you know, its effect on injuries and so forth. But it just, you know, it just didn't work in practice. Uh, one rule I, I really like, and that's been taken, I think what the NRL have done with it now is the position of the scrums. So pre-Super League, it was the scrum 10 metres in. Super League moved it 20 metres in. I loved that when it came out. Yeah. I thought it was the most brilliant thing. 
Wait, the blind side is not that much bigger. Yeah, 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 <laughs> exactly. And now I think it's even better. For all the criticism the NRL have copped, for their all changes over the last few years, I think what they've done with the scrums yeah. and giving the teams the option, I think that's a brilliant move. Yeah. And, and we're actually seeing like good attacking play from scrums as a result. It's only been 30 years and now we're starting to get it right. Yeah. But one of the big criticisms of Super League was about the too many points that were scored as a result of these rules, the you score, we score competition. Well, that was the case of the uh, pace yeah, you know, like that's like having a small or a big ten, you know. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say. That the too many points thing—it wasn't really about the rules at all. It was about interpretation of the play the ball. So yeah. it was a crackdown on the play the ball that we've seen many times since. <laughs> How many crackdowns have we lived through? <laughs> yeah, uh, and you know, Graham Annesley was pretty open about it. He said, "Our game's about scoring tries." The crowds come to life when a try is scored. All the rule changes in the past 20 months have been designed to increase the speed of the game. I'm amazed that people are now saying we are scoring too many tries. What are you amazed about? It's like 44 to 36 every week. Yeah, I know. Super League spokesmen would say this stuff without realizing that like, you've devalued tries. We like seeing tries scored when they actually are relevant, but when it's just like a try fest... To me, it's like anything like that where they try to get the best thing out of something and like mm. center it around that. T20 cricket. Yeah. When they used to have that like trampoline basketball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds awesome yeah. when you're a kid and you're like, this is fucking shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the most egregious example of Debbie Spillane's PR spin in Super League magazine. Stop it. I like it. That phrase comes to mind when I read and hear about the scandalous number of tries being scored in rugby league this year. All this free-flowing attacking stuff. Disgraceful, isn't it? Whose idea was it to let players with athletic skills, ball handling ability, (laughs) good reflexes and anticipation stop the big aggro brutish types from showing what they can do? These new super league rules are designed to turn league players into a bunch of wussy quiche eaters who think the game's all about fitness, technique and teamwork. (laughs) unfairly maligned the quiche there. (laughs) (laughs) There's just this smug superiority of her writing in in the magazine and, like, people aren't idiots. Like This is the thing. They're treating the fans like morons on both sides. Yeah. Mate, this is a Sydney club. How good is it going to be? No, it's not. Yeah. We know that. Yeah. Oh, mate, this Super League's awesome. No, it's not. Yeah. (laughs) And the other thing about the increase in tries being, you know, based on a crackdown rather than explicitly because of any of the rule changes, was that it was quite easy to walk it back. As every crackdown (laughs) has done ever since, all it takes is a few weeks of negative media coverage. The crackdown ends. So after 45 Super League matches, there'd been 303 tries scored. At the comparable point in the ARL season the year before, it was 222. So a quite significant increase. Like, by the end of the year, that had, like, completely leveled off. So by the end of the year, Super League averaged 7.2 tries a game to the ARL 6.8, and the points were slightly higher, 42.6, four points a game, compared with the ARL's 37.95. Like you said, it's such an easy tweak, but there's never been a more pure market force than the post-crackdown media and fan revolt to settle out a rule. Yeah. 
Yeah, like it yeah, just exactly. works out by market forces. Yeah. Exactly. W- would it surprise you that Turvey had a different solution, which was to bring back the five meter roll? <laughs> Is he like honestly the most regressive brain in the game <laughs> since? <laughs> he makes some good points from time to time, but uh, yeah, like it's always a, a return to the tradition. <laughs> The five-meter rule is gone. It's not coming back. Uh, And one of the inciting incidents of the end of the crackdown was Ricky Stewart coming out in the press and talking about rugby league being like touch football. One of the most memorable lines of the whole thing. So it ran in the Canberra Times with the inflammatory headline, Football Boring, Stewart. (laughs) It takes a guy like that obnoxious to really... yeah. So it came after a game against the Auckland Warriors and Ricky Stewart accused the Warriors players of voluntary tackles. It was right. Just, yeah, diving at the legs of Canberra to get a quick play the ball on. That was just the worst look ever. Mm. I've been through a lot of bad looks in rugby league in my time. Yeah. And that was a bad look. <laughs> and predictably, ARL types like Phil Gould and Neil Whittaker, you know, jumped on the comments to, you know, highlight that Super League was a joke. Less predictably, you know, some of the most staunch Super League spokesmen from the players in the early years, like Simon Gillies, was out saying, I haven't read Ricky's article, and it's the first time I think anyone's come out and said that, but he's not the only one who thinks like that. I join with Ricky and say to the powers that be that it's something they have to look at. I don't want to see it become that sort of football either. So we go from um, voluntary tackles, uh, diving into legs, to people choking the necks of players to yeah. keep them down <laughs> yeah. for two decades. You know, like, it's, you can't win. No, you can't. Like, there's always going to be a tactic designed to overcome whatever rules are in place. This is us with rose-colored glasses. It's a fundamental flaw in the game, really, that the ruck is so important to the success. Yeah, 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 true. But like, it goes to show you that all it takes is minor tweaks in either direction to restore balance. But probably the most significant change in terms of Super League officiating was the technology in terms of bringing in the video ref. I love this. Yeah. It was the way the world was going. Even if there'd been no Super League war, if we didn't have video ref in 1997, we would have had it by, you know, 2000 or so. But I love the presentation of it as well, the spinning Super League symbol. Yeah, The ARL trialled it at the sevens that year, which was in our notes for the next episode, using the, you know, just the kind of red light, green light option. Um, And I know in your notes you said you you weren't a fan of that. It looked cheap. They had that, like, black analog board. Yeah, yeah. But it looked like something made on play school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like out of pipe cleaners or something. It was embarrassing. Yeah, (laughs) it was. So I don't know why you went from, like, the Super League presentation to, like, this regressive, like, you know, like outdated presentation that they did in the early NRL era. Well, that was that thing with the robot, warning, warning, lost in space. <laughs> That's what it reminded me of. Yeah. Uh, but so it was coming at some stage. We had the third umpire brought into cricket in 1992. The VDRF started really with the NFL, so it was experimented with in the 70s there, came in mid-80s. Think about that. That's forward thinking. Yeah. You're dealing with like 180p... Yeah. Um, <laughs> resolution. And you go, all right, bring it in. Well, I think for that reason, the technology wasn't there yet. So it was trialed in one preseason match 
for the NFL in 1978, and it was just decided that the technology wasn't there yet, came in in 1986 or so, lasted for seven seasons before they decided that it wasn't working. And so when Super League brought it in in 1997, it was another two years before the NFL brought it back again. Yeah. So mixed reaction. We mentioned Turvey. Uh, he was a doubter who became converted. He said, hell, I even had trouble accepting a video player in my own home when they first became popular. <laughs> I didn't even want one. Resisted getting one, in fact. But I was won over and wouldn't be without one now. <laughs> but with the advent of technology comes the advent of new errors. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is the thing, and we're still seeing it to this day. And I think part of the problem with the video ref or the public perception of it is that it's set up to be this infallible thing when we're still at the mercy of imperfect technology, incomplete camera angles, and the infallibility of human error because there's still a human deciding on it. Yeah, I mean, it's just the the really ridiculous ones. Yeah. Uh, was it in the nines where they had they pressed the wrong button? Yeah, that was like in the world nine. So one of the first uses of video ref in Australia. I, I remember this happening when I, when I watched it and going, how can you get that wrong? <laughs> There's two buttons. So, I mean, luckily we've come a long way from that. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think it's always going to be an imperfect system and you know the discourse kind of needs to factor that in a bit. I just more. don't understand what the argument against it is. Besides time wasting, which they've got it down these days to a pretty quick yeah. thing, but you want to have human decisions at breakneck speed, and then they'll be whining about that because mm. they're watching a replay. Yeah, he's missed that. Can you believe it? Yeah. and then they go video ref and they whine about that. Yeah, it's like what more do you want? I know. So in the end, the ARL decided to not bring it in mainly because of the time it was going to take, which I think that was smart from the ARL to take a softly, softly approach and say, we're going to trial it, we're going to you know, look at it. And they didn't say this publicly, but they've got a year to see how it works in Super League. So it wasn't the only innovation with the referees. They were miking them up. Um, not a fan. I think like now we've just accepted it, that we're going to hear the referee and it adds to the game now. Well, yeah, I, I don't mind hearing them periodically. Uh, when they mic'd up Super League ref, or was it about 98 decibels? Yeah, yeah. And that's all you heard. Get off the ball, mate, roll <laughs> forward. There's little rat-faced uh, voices they've got. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a new era for referees. So it was the start of full-time refereeing. So this is probably the best example of Super League the magazine as a propaganda rag. <laughs> this is Graham Bicknell. They're the referees, bane of rugby league supporters down the ages. Hopefully those times are gone and it will be a rare moment now when a crowd chants, kill the ref. Wired for sound and with the added bonus. <laughs> <laughs> like, like I've never been in a football match and heard, kill the ref. I reckon if you started that chant, you'd be... <laughs> Take it easy, mate. Look. Wired for sound and with the added bonus of the third referee, disastrous and plain silly decisions should become a distant memory. <laughs> I've never seen one since. <laughs> so I've got to say of the Super League referees, the black and white stripes, like, all right, it was a direct copy of the NFL, but adding the PlayStation sponsorship, there's something iconic about those referee jerseys They're really now. cool, yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Like I think outside of TNT. Yeah. 
it's the first kind of but TNT was like a little bit ironic. They were comical looking, yeah, powder puff blue and orange, <laughs> pastel orange or whatever. They were comical, yeah. And um, I loved them, but you know, skin tight little white shorts and whatever. Um, they look pretty cool, the Super League refs. Yeah, as far as refs go. Yeah, and of course it was the making of Bill Harrigan as a, a public figure, growing his hair out, being labelled a sex symbol. I mean, he was legitimately a sex symbol. Yeah. And it amazes me. Yeah. That a referee is out there like crushing puss. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I should say he was a happily married man <laughs> at this point in time. Well, so. he had the option to. <laughs> um, but so with that, with the hair, with the video ref coming in, you know, he was getting the Hollywood label, leading to fans saying that he was too good to use the video ref. <laughs> I remember that. I remember it. And in his book, he says that, yeah, he did kind of back his ability like a bit more, but he was eventually brought in by John Rebo and Rebo said, look, the video ref, you know, gives us a chance to, you know, promote our sponsors and so we'd appreciate if you used it a bit more. I mean, what sort of narcissistic psycho wants to back his ability? Don't worry about getting the decision right, mate. I'm that good at refereeing (laughs) that I can tell. Um, Yeah, so he started to use it a bit more after being spoken to by Rebo. And like in 1997, he was regarded the best referee in the game and it wasn't even close. So It's so funny though that being a great ref just comes down to like speaking with respect to players. Yeah. yeah. He talks to you like, You're you're a real human being. It's like, I really appreciate it. That's all it takes. So let's turn to the ARL rules to finish. And I think maybe the best rule of either competition was bringing the 40-20 rule. Oh, yeah. And when you think about the ARL, like they are the traditional, the establishment. I can't believe they did it. They didn't have to do anything, but they, you know, made some pretty radical changes. It's actually incongruent. And it just instantly worked. It didn't need tweaking. It was just a great rule from the outset that we still enjoy to this day. Interestingly, like with some of the rules that were brought in aligned with Super League, like they also ended the striking for the ball at the play the ball. They brought in a one-on-one strip at the same time. (laughs) And then also like a not played at rule. This was another Super League rule change where if you threw it at someone and it went into touch and it wasn't played at. Think about pre-not played at. Yeah, yeah, I know. It was insane. so frustrating. Yeah. Taking time off when refs were speaking to players seems like a no-brainer <laughs> to me. Uh, and just simplifying scrums as well. So previously it was said that halves were required to feed the ball into the centre of the tunnel. This was the start of you just need to, you know, put it in the tunnel anyway, well, basically. it's expedient, but it's a blight. It's a blight, but it's how much you care about scrums. Yeah. I can see why the oldies get agitated. Yeah. Um, And then the the last was, I can't believe I couldn't find this when I was looking for it in our mousetrap episode, but they basically legalised the mousetrap at this point. (laughs) Is that a rugby league statement? (laughs) (laughs) Legalise it. But from the ARL, for me, the really interesting thing is the rejected rule changes. So these were all NFL imports. The first suggestion was to move the position of the kickoff. So you'd be kicking off from like the 40-metre line instead of the 50-metre line, which would give the attacking team like better position. hate it. I hate this one. Uh, The option of a three-point play 
after you scored instead of a conversion. Whose idea was that? It was actually Brian Smith's. That's what I thought, yeah. Um, Brian Smith and Mark Guy are the two like left-field weirdo idea merchants of the yeah. era. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. So basically you'd have three tackles in lieu of a conversion. You'd have three tackles to score a try. Just play Tillywinks. Yeah. It was actually supported by the coaches, but the voice of reason were the players who said, no, that's ridiculous. We don't want that. That's something we haven't heard on this podcast before. <laughs> the players were the voice of reason. <laughs> One idea was a breaking the plane rule. So in the NFL, you don't need to put the ball down as long as you, as part of the ball crosses the line, it's a try, a touchdown. That's one of the reasons I don't like NFL, to be honest. Um, leaving everything else aside, like how is that going to work when you have like tries scored from kicks? Yeah. Like it, it just doesn't make, you know. Just put your hand on top yeah, of the ball like, in the air. Yeah, like how does that work? Um, the surprising thing about the breaking the plane rule was who suggested it, which was Eric Cox, the ARL <laughs> ground manager who we last heard of telling Bill Harrigan that he didn't deserve to live in a country that Eric Cox had dug trenches for in the war. It's so surprising that, like, the war brought regressive men into, like, ideas men. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> pre-war, would Eric Cox have come up with that? Well, I don't think so. But uh, interestingly enough, he hadn't completely changed his worldview from <laughs> earlier years. So... At the SFS for a game, he saw two people standing near the sideline in Super League hats. He went up to them and said, take those Super League caps and put them in your bags. I'm not joking, son. Get them off. (laughs) Uh, And also temporarily quit his position at the ARL because uh, the ARL didn't pay for a trip to Melbourne for his wife for the second State of Origin (laughs) game. He told them to stick it and submitted his resignation. Um, The fact that they just didn't accept the resignation tells me that it was a threat he might have made at points in the past. Oh, you must be so much to people from where I'm from. (laughs) So I think on both sides, ARL and Super League, the rule changes were good. I think they did a lot of good and the game we have today is to some degree because of changes made in this era and who knows if they would have been brought in otherwise. I've got respect for both sides on it, loved the uh, both efforts, but it's like why not do it then? The game was already torn yeah. to shreds. Yeah, Perfect time. Yeah. Uh, and so that is the end of this episode and so in the concluding episode of this chapter, we will see those rule changes put into practice as we have kickoff in Super League 1997. So uh, thanks for listening and we will speak to you next time. Bye-bye.